This talk was given by Patrick Yunin Kelly at the Zen Center of New York City. Yunin is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org zcnyc. Thanks for listening. So good morning. Um, I wanted to start uh, with a story. Uh, and this is, this is from a collection called the, the Pancha Tantra. And this is one of the, the stories of the, uh, the previous births of Shakyamuni Buddha. So I'll let you guess which character is the Buddha. So the story goes, four friends, stricken with poverty and seeking to get rich, encountered a magician named Bhairavananda and begged him for help. The magician gave each of them a magic feather and instructed them to head north to the slope of the Himalayas. Whenever, whenever a feather drops, he instructed, the owner of that feather will find a treasure. So the four seekers set out together, each with a feather in hand. Before long, the feather of the first seeker fell to the ground, and the companions found the soil in that place to be full of copper. Why go any further, said the first seeker. Surely there is enough copper here for all of us to be comfortable for the rest of our lives. But the other three chose to go on in search of more treasure. When the second feather dropped, the remaining seekers found a rich vein of silver just beneath the surface. Ah, said the second seeker, stay with me and the three of us shall be rich indeed. But the other two continued on. After a strenuous journey, the third feather dropped. The two seekers dug and, after much effort, came upon a deposit of pure gold. Stay with me, said the third seeker. We will be rich beyond measure. But don't you see the pattern, replied the fourth seeker. First copper, then silver, then gold. The fourth feather will surely reveal diamonds and emeralds and rubies as big as hen's eggs. And so the last seeker went on alone. His limbs were scorched by the rays of the sun and his throat parched with thirst as he wandered the trackless, trackless wastes in the land of the spirits. At last he looked up from, his, from the endless sand and saw, on a whirling platform, a man with blood dripping down his body, for a wheel of sharp razors was whirling about his head. Why are you standing there with a wheel whirling about your head, he asked. As soon as he spoke, the wheel left the other's head and settled on his own. What is the meaning of this, he exclaimed. In the very same way, replied the other, it settled on my head. But when will it go away, cried the seeker. It hurts terribly. And the other answered, when a seeker with a magic feather arrives and speaks just as you did, then the wheel will settle on their head. Well, how long have you been here? asked the seeker. The other responded, I cannot reckon the ages. Long ago, I was poverty-stricken and procured a magic feather from a magician. I journeyed to this place in search of treasure, and I saw another with a wheel on his head and put a question to him. 
As soon as I did, the wheel left his head and settled on mine. I have been here ever since. How did you get food and water, said the seeker? The god of wealth, fearful lest his treasures be stolen, prepared this terror so that no magician might come so far. And if any should succeed in coming, the seeker was to be spared from hunger and thirst and was merely to endure the suffering and joy of the entire universe, from the hills of ice and fire below all the way up to the highest heaven of light. With this, he departed. So good morning. Um, my name is Yunin. I'm a, a senior lay student, as, as Tenfu mentioned. Um, I use he, him pronouns. And uh, just uh, a warm welcome to everyone. There's a lot of new folk here for the first time, so, so welcome. I'm glad you can join us. And I'd like to talk about um, this morning, start with the basics and talk about the first noble truth. Uh, it was taught by the Buddha, uh, and which is often translated as, as life is suffering. Uh, the, the Pali or Sanskrit word is dukkha, so it's life is dukkha. And dukkha, dukkha means something like suffering, but it could also be translated as uh, stress, anxiety, dissatisfaction. In fact, it's sometimes not translated because it has a sort of much larger valence than our English word suffering. So when the, the Buddha... Uh, under the rubric of dukkha, he even included states of sublime meditative concentration of, of deep samadhi, these profound states of meditative bliss. He, he considered those also dukkha, no less than what we might think of, of as acute pain. And the reason he did that was because he realized that even these states of, 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 of deep awareness and deep bliss even, because they arise due to conditions, you have to meditate, you have to have maybe perhaps some facility for it, I don't know. Um, you have to have maybe a time and a place and some, some space to be able to do this. When those conditions change, even these, these very peaceful, uh, exalted states will change. And so they're not permanent. And because they're not permanent, they're not fundamentally reliable. And for that reason, he considered them also dukkha. So it's, it's, it's larger than our English word, you know, suffering. So even if you have, you know, a perfect job, the perfect partner, the perfect, you know, apartment situation and everything else, from this point of view, that's also dukkha. I mean, there is a distinction. I would much rather have that than, than a lot of other situations, but... And so this story is in... Um, would you mind handing me that clock just so I can... Sorry, I, I don't want to... I like to see how long I'm going on for. Thank you. Um, so this story is often... or It's traditionally sometimes presented as a story about the dangers of greed. And it's, you know, that's a good lesson, and that's, that's kind of straightforward, and you can see that. Um, but as I said, it's also um, understood as... as recounting one of the past lives of Shakyamuni Buddha, the, 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 the person, the human being, the teacher who lived some 2,500 years ago and 
came to a deep realization and then presented this wisdom tradition for, for other people. Um, but it's, it's often said within the Mahayana tradition, which this is a part of, um, that, that the Buddha had experienced many lives, many, many countless lives, before he realized uh, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, Supreme Perfect Enlightenment. And that over those countless lives, in various ways, as different people, men, women, high caste, low caste, animals, hell beings, all sorts of incarnations, he was cultivating wisdom and compassion. And that finally culminated with his realization. So the point is, is that it's, it's a very long path from this point of view. And so I think but one of the things that's interesting about this story is, is the question of intention. You know, what are we after and what are we willing to settle for in life, in a, in a spiritual practice, or in any other context? But especially in this context, we should, we're encouraged, and it's, I think it's good to, to keep asking ourselves, why am I doing this? Even if you're here for the first time, I mean, you may, maybe you're just sort of curious, it sounded interesting, which is fine. I mean, it's not like there's a right answer, but it's good to ask, why do I practice? And also, do I expect to get something out of it? And if so, what? And again, this isn't, it's not bad to want something out of it. I mean, in fact, I would be suspicious of anyone who said that they don't want anything at all out of it. Um, you know, as long as we're alive, we want something. That's just the nature of, of the human world. And it might, be, it might be different things. So maybe better health. Some people might want that. Better relationships, less anxiety, less pain, community status, a sense of belonging, wisdom, compassion, kensho, insight into the nature of reality, satori, anatara samyak sambodhi, copper, silver, gold, rubies as big as hen's eggs. You know, what, what am I after? And I may not know. That's fine, too. It's just a useful question. You know, in this, in this order, when someone wants to become a formal student, they're asked to appear before what we call the Guardian Council, which is a group of um, senior students. And, and the council asks the person, why? Why do you want to do this? There are so many things you could be doing to help them clarify what it is. Yastani Roshi, who is a a Japanese teacher a few generations back in our sort of our lineage. We we chanted his name this morning, Ganshin Ryoko Daiosho is Yastani. He would sometimes speak of the different levels of aspiration in Zen practice. And say the first the first level is uh, just sort of ending up here without really knowing why, um, due to fortunate karmic circumstances. Uh, and without necessarily having much faith or understanding, which is still considered a very fortunate um, occurrence. Uh, 
The second was practicing Zazen in order to improve one's um, physical or mental health, or both. The third is practicing Zazen out of uh, respect and belief in the, the sort of profound or exalted nature of the Buddhist uh, teaching. And finally, the fourth is uh, practicing Zazen out of a deep determination to, to realize awakening in this life. And it's not like you have to fit into one of these and you can never change. Or, or, um, or even that one is necessarily better than the other. They're just different. You know, we, we, as soon as we, we set out a list of four things, we automatically start ranking. Um, but, and this is important because this practice can be difficult. It can be challenging. And in a very, a very real sense, I think, we, we, we have no idea what we're getting into. Uh, we think we do. But we really don't. And I say that even after you know doing this for, for, for a while, I can see where I've come, but I, I have no idea what the next step is really going to be. You know, I think I do. We may find that we get like the, the seeker in the story. We may find that we end up with more than we bargained for. And also less than we bargained for. There's that sense of disappointment that I think everyone experiences along the way at times. I was thinking of when I went to the Guardian Council, um, it was actually like two weeks after the World Trade Centers were destroyed in 9-11. And I, I remember feeling this sort of rawness among everyone in the city, but also a kind of, it's like the blinders had been ripped off and people were... Uh, present and kind in a way that, that I hadn't really experienced in New York before. Um, and I remember saying, they were, kept, they were asking me and pressing me, why do you want to do this? And I kind of said, I want, to, I want to get back to that experience of that, that raw sort of, of presence. And then I was like, oh, shit, did I just say that? Because um, I, I realized that was, it kind of popped out of me. I didn't know that I wanted that. And I realized that that, that, that would not be, um, it was painful at the same time, I think. Uh, Chugan Roshi, the abbot of the order, was here last weekend and he gave a retreat on um, self-doubt and, and trust. And he, he told a story about the... Um, uh, meeting with the Dalai Lama and some American Buddhist teachers, especially on the, the topic of, of self-doubt and self-hatred. And um, they were asking the Dalai Lama about that. And one thing he said, according to Shugan, that he suggested was, maybe it would be helpful to place less emphasis on the first noble truth, life is suffering, and to emphasize maybe the second or third noble truths, uh, suffering has a cause and uh, suffering has an end, the cessation of suffering or liberation. Maybe it's better to focus on that sometimes. So I thought this was really interesting and I, I started thinking and so I, I, I asked Shugan a question about this teaching life is dukkha, life is suffering. And I said, what 
is this, you know, maybe sometimes medicine and sometimes poison? What are the circumstances in which it's useful? What are the circumstances in which it's not useful? And I didn't realize at the time, but I guess I was kind of fishing for something, as, as I think we, we often do when we ask a question. I guess I was expecting him to say something like, well, it's helpful under this set of circumstances, A, B, C, and under that set of circumstances, maybe you want to back off and f- focus more on liberation rather than suffering. And, you know, you need to know yourself, and then with practice, you, you sort of learn this to trust yourself and this discernment when one is appropriate and one is not. Something like that, as I was expecting that he would say. I said, there, there's just so much suffering in the world, but but maybe... I don't know, maybe it's good not to focus on that sometimes. And his answer was, yeah, there is a lot of suffering in the world, and it's overwhelming. Next. (laughs) Trungpa Rinpoche once said, this is a a fairly well-known quote. Um, It's... uh, Well, let me just read it. He said, My advice to you is not to undertake the spiritual path. It is too difficult, too long, and too demanding. I would suggest that you ask for your money back and go home now. This is not a picnic. It is really going to ask everything of you. So it is best not to begin. However, if you do begin, it is best to finish. And, you know, I hesitate because this is a little bit intense. Uh, You know, so I... (laughs) I'm sorry, and I, I think I'll, I think I'll get to a, a point where to, um, you know, he's also fishing because for some people anyway. I mean, for me, that sort of thing makes me kind of curious, um, but maybe I'm just kind of masochistic. I don't know. But but in a sense, and and in a in in a way, I should say that that it's it's too late for all of us already. You know, if we're here. It's too late. And, and even, even just being born as a human being, it's too late. Because we have to deal with this problem of suffering. And, of course, we come up with all sorts of ways to pretend that we don't. I mean, I think everyone does, but I'm not sure that helps. In a way, what he's doing is he's just restating the first noble truth when he says that. Um, Life is suffering, you know? We can try to, to get around it or to find a shortcut or detour, but there's really no escape. In, a, in clinical psychology, uh, people sometimes make a, a distinction between um, what they call symptoms or defenses that are... Um, Egocentonic uh, versus egodystonic. And so these terms, an egocentonic uh, symptom or defense or view is one that's so familiar to the ego, to your sense of self, that it's taken for granted. And in and, and that way, it's entirely invisible. You can't really see it. And for the, because you don't see it, it's difficult to, to work with it, to, to treat it, to heal it. And an egodystonic symptom on the other hand, is one that, that is experienced as, as upsetting or, or distressing to some degree. But because it's present, and because it's sort of like, you know, it's like a, a, a pebble in your shoe or something, because you notice it, you can actually be aware of it and then start to work with it. 
And in, in some cases, the job of a, a good therapist is to make people aware of, to help people become aware of views or, or uh, patterns that are causing them suffering or distress, but that they're not actually aware of. In order to see something, in order to address something, we need to be able to see it. I, I had a, a <laughs> I had a direct experience of this just earlier this this week. I was um, I had been on jury duty and then I had left and then I was walking home and I realized, oh, I don't have my glasses. I forgot my glasses. And then I went on this, I started thinking, oh, I'm going to have to pay to get some more. I was searching through all my pockets. They're not here. They're not there. They're not in my bag. I'm going to have to buy some more. And I didn't budget for that this month. And this is such a hassle. Oh, God, I'm such an idiot. Why do I always like leave my glasses behind? I did this for like 10, 15 minutes. And then I realized I was wearing them <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> Which was a relief. <laughs> and, and that was a case in which I didn't have to, once I noticed the nature of the problem, there wasn't much more I needed to do. It's not always, it's not always that easy, but... I mean, I think you could say that, that in, in Buddhist practice, in Zen practice, that the symptom or, or the problem is not some particular behavior. It's the nature of reality itself. It's fundamentally dissatisfying, the great matter of life and death. Life is suffering. And this can seem like kind of a downer. Um, but once we really come to accept this, and I, I don't think it's like you, it's not something that you just accept. I mean, I don't accept it. I don't want life to be suffering. But over the years, I've learned to maybe work with it a little bit more. And when we, when we turn towards our own suffering and that of others, um, when we start to turn towards the suffering of, of all beings, of the whole world, we realize that that is the shortcut. That is the escape. The Dalai Lama, I found a nice sort of quote from him on this. He said, for somebody who's engaging in the bodhisattva path, one seeks to take other suffering onto oneself. So for example, when you experience fear, you remind yourself that others experience fear also in the same way, and you open yourself to their fear as well. And as a result, even though you're opening yourself to greater suffering, your fear lessens, your suffering lessens. It's, it's quite remarkable how this works. I mean, I have no idea how it works, but it, it does seem to work. And I find that, that my, my encounter with suffering, it, it takes me to places that I would not go on my own, of my own volition. No way. And, 
and and for that reason, I can and actually even appreciate it sometimes that that it, this is making me a little bit larger than I than I would have been otherwise. And it's only it's only thanks to to that because I wouldn't do it. I just want to to feel good and and have things the way I want them. I mean, that's basically my my basic point of view. And I, I think everyone, I want what I want. I don't want what I don't want, and I'm indifferent to everything else. So this can help. Uh, these these adverse experiences, they can help us become larger. So this seems really difficult, really, really difficult, or it can. There's another teaching. Um, so, for example, in the Faith Mind poem, which is a a text that we study a lot here. And the very first line of this poem says, the great way is not difficult. Just avoid picking and choosing. When love and hate are both absent, the way is clear and undisguised. And this is also true. Fundamentally, there is not a problem. In the Heart Sutra we chanted this morning, no suffering, no cause of suffering, no cessation of suffering, no eightfold path, no wisdom, and no attainment. There go the four noble truths. <laughs> what is that? It's, this reminded me of um, a story of a, of a person named Carl uh, Krauss, who was a, lived at, in the early 20th century in Vienna and was a, a satirist, a writer. And this was the time when, when Freud and psychoanalysis was really big in, in uh, Vienna at the same time and was kind of a big deal. And he, he kind of, I guess he liked to poke fun at them uh, for being maybe over-serious or taking themselves too seriously. And he has a, a line that I really liked. He said, psychoanalysis is itself the disease of which it purports to be the cure. And I thought, you could say the same of, of Zen practice, of Buddhist practice. Zen practice is itself the disease of which it purports to be the cure. And actually, this is, you know, teachers say this. Uh, Muman, who is the compiler of one of the classic koan collections, says that the job of the Zen teacher is, is raising waves where there is no wind and gouging wounds in healthy flesh. But it's not, it's not just pointless. It's done, we call it, it caused, trouble is caused for the point of healing those who are never sick. That's really the point, to heal those of us, all of us. We think we're in need of something, we think we're sick in some way, and the point is to that we never were. But to see that is, is something else. To say it is one thing. To actually experience that is something different. And I was I was just revisiting that, that story that I started with, the story of the four travelers in the past life of the Buddha. I was thinking, you know, the story ends when the, the, the first person who had had the wheel on his head 
is relieved of his duty, and then he, he departs. And I think if you were to continue this story, you know, what would happen? Well, I guess he would go home. You know, he maybe checks his emails and takes a hot bath. It's like the, uh, the tenth ox herding picture. The seeker, after going through all of this, goes back into the marketplace uh, for the benefit of other people. So this is a short um, text from the, this is from the recorded sayings of, of Lehman Pang, who was a, a lay Zen practitioner in, in the, um, the 8th century during the Tang Dynasty in China. And Lehman Pang was a lay practitioner. He was married and had a daughter, uh, uh, Ling Zhao Pang, who, whose name we chanted this morning in the Women Ancestors, who is supposedly the, the brightest of the whole bunch. Um, anyway, here's the story. The layman was sitting in his thatched cottage one day, studying the sutras. Difficult, 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 he suddenly exclaimed, like trying to scatter ten measures of sesame seed all over a tree. Easy, 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 returned Mrs. Pong, just like touching your feet to the ground when you get out of bed. Neither difficult nor easy, said Ling Zhao Pong, on the hundred grass tips, the teaching of the ancestors. Is Zazen, is Zen practice difficult? Maybe. Not quite. Is it easy? Not exactly. What about neither difficult nor easy? That's just another dodge. I was experiencing this. I had a, I was at the January session and I, I had a really hard time. You know, I was thinking, it, it's a long story. But I was, I was just, I think we all have that experience sometimes where we're, we, you sit in a period and it's like, I don't even know if I can make it to the end of this period. I don't even know if I can make it through the, to the next breath. So I was in that state of mind, and I was thinking, this is so difficult. And then I realized, is that even true? I, I, I'm not sure. And I, I was feeling at the end of it all, I was just feeling, I, I don't, you know, it's alive. I don't know what it is, actually. It, I feel like sometimes it, it curls up in the sun and takes a nap. Sometimes it wails and moans and gnashes its teeth. Sometimes it leaps up and soars across the heaven. What is it? It's so mysterious. You know, we sometimes call it the lotus in the fire. Joshua once called it cypress tree in the garden. Dogen called it the blue mountains are constantly walking. The stone woman gives birth to a child in the night. Gutai called it this. What do you call it? So let me close with a, a poem. This is 
by Gion, who was the fifth abbot of Eheji, so a few generations after Dogen. And this is actually his death poem. So there's a genre of, of poetry in, in China, and particularly in Japan, of people writing, at the end of their life, they'll write a death poem. To, I guess it's sort of like open sozan, where you, where you sum up the, uh, the experience, not of seishin, but of a lifetime. But the point is, interestingly, that death poems are written by people who are still alive. So in a sense, they're life poems also. Anyway, this is his death poem. All doctrines split asunder. Zen teaching cast away. 81 years. The sky now cracks and falls. The earth cleaves open. In the heart of the fire lies a hidden spring. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.